0: Hey, good morning, everybody. I appreciate you responding. I was trying to figure it out as I was sitting back, and I heard you guys singing. And by the way, your voices sounded really, really great this morning. I was thinking about it, and I was like, if I get up there and I say good morning, and they don't say good morning back, my next plan of action was to sit and awkwardly stare at like one or two of you until somebody just said good morning. Uh, So... Hey, good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Dylan, and I do student ministry here at River Ridge. I've been here for about five years now, working with both our high school and our middle school students, uh, and I absolutely love that job. I do a couple other roles on Sunday mornings. A lot of times I'm taking pictures. Sometimes I'm running elements of the live stream, uh, and sometimes I'm just running around the church fixing random technology things. But every now and then, Matt lets me get up here and preach and teach and talk to you guys about the Word of God, and I am thankful to have that opportunity this morning. So if you will, let's go ahead and pray uh, as we get back into our uh, series called Ancient Words, Relevant Truth. Dear Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to get together and to read your word. God, today as we read a story that we've maybe heard a thousand times, help it to uh, be new to us. Help us to get something new from it. Help us to have a takeaway that changes our life this morning. God, I believe that your word is active. I believe that your word is powerful, and it will change us if we really pay attention to what it has to say. So this morning, help us to really lean in to what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So like I said, guys, we're back in our series called Ancient Words, Relevant Truth, or Relevant for short. If you don't have one of these yet, I'm going to encourage you. We have these really awesome devotional guides that will walk you through the Bible in a year, and we actually reordered these, and they are now spelled correctly, So, yeah, yes, it only took us two runs of 300 of them to finally get it right. So these are out on the table in the lobby. If you want to go out there and grab one after service, we would love for you to join in with reading through Scripture with us together. And our sermons will be loosely kind of following that same pattern of starting in the book of Genesis ending in the book of Revelation, and seeing Jesus all the way through. Uh, Really quickly, I just wanted to speak to where some of you guys might be with this reading guide. Maybe some of you guys at the beginning of the year had really great intentions, and you said, you know what? I think that this is the year that I'm going to read the Bible in a year. And you picked up one of these guides, and you took it home, and you kind of like threw it off on your couch, and it's still just kind of sitting on your couch, right? I want to invite you to go ahead and start tomorrow, Because any time that we can start reading Scripture is a good time to start reading Scripture. So even if you've missed out on the first couple weeks, don't miss out on the next couple weeks. Because what God has to say to us through His Word is absolutely amazing. And like I said, I think it will change us. So this morning, uh, we're going to be talking about a story that a lot of you guys have heard by a show of hands. Who has ever heard the story of Noah's Ark? Yes, okay? Uh, a lot of you guys have maybe even watched, like, some cool Veggie Tales movie on it, or you sat through a Sunday school lesson on it, and you just, when you think of Noah's Ark, you think of, like, a giant, majestic boat, and then this big old flood, and then these cute little, like, cartoon animals just kind of frolicking around. Uh... Unfortunately, that's not actually the story that Scripture paints. It's a little bit different than that. Uh, But because we have middle school kids in here today, I'm going to try to keep it a little bit PG for us. Um, So before we get started, I want to return to where we've been. The past couple weeks, we've been talking about the idea of Genesis and what it does to set up the rest of Scripture for us. And so in the first week of our series, Matt took us through the creation account that's found in Genesis 1 and 2. And Matt said things like, You know, there's a lot of different theories about how creation actually worked, but the important thing to remember is that God created everything. Whether he did it in seven days, seven years, or seven billion years, God spoke everything into existence, which changes my life when I think about it because it means that God spoke me into existence. It means that he was intentionally thinking about you and I at the beginning of creation, and that's pretty cool. When God creates everything, he says, that it is good. But he looks around and he sees that something is missing. So he creates humankind. And when he does that, he says it's very good. You see, there was an original goodness to creation, but I think in 2023, sometimes it's hard for us to see that original goodness in creation. So what we learned last week was why the world is how it is. Why the world is broken today. And the reason we came up with was because of this original sin of what the Bible calls the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. It was these two characters who were living in this amazing garden called the Garden of Eden in perfect relationship with God himself. And God, because he created the world, was able to set some boundaries and set some guidelines. And he does that. And he says, basically, you can enjoy anything in this garden that you want except for this one thing. And what do Adam and Eve choose? They choose the one thing that was off limits. Because of this, sin entered into our world, and it came with some major consequences. The primary consequence being that this relationship that we were created for between us and God was broken, and there was nothing that we could do to fix it. And from there, things kind of spiral out of control. As you look at the narrative of Genesis, things get crazier and crazier and crazier, and then thousands and thousands and thousands of years later, we're sitting here in this church, nicely furnished, in a comfortable environment, but still the world is pervaded with sin. Things are still broken. And so in between what Matt discussed with us last week and where we'll be today, we start to experience something new that I wanted to bring up, because I think it's really significant to our conversation. Uh, What we experience between Genesis 1 and 2, and where we're going to be today, Genesis 6, is the introduction of a new kind of sin. And that sin is the sin of violence. In Genesis 4, we find the story of Cain and Abel. These are the sons of Adam and Eve. And it's a very, very short story, but it depicts a scene in which Cain kills his own brother Abel. But here's the interesting thing that happens. God delivers a punishment against Cain, which is what you would expect— but God does something else as well. He also extends grace and protection for Cain. You see, it's clear that God's main motive in uh, his creation was to maintain shalom or peace within that creation. God attempts to end this cycle of violence from the beginning. He tries to cut it off. He says, No one harm Cain. But still, violence kind of pervades our culture today. A quote that I really love from Martin Luther King Jr. about the cycle of violence, states this, returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. And this truth is something that we see throughout the entire narrative of the Old Testament. And it's a truth that we see in the entire narrative of the New Testament. And it's a time that we see right here, right now, in 2023. And so now that we've set up the context for where we're going to land in Genesis 6, if you wow. will, go ahead and open your Bible or your phone to Genesis 6, and that's where we'll be starting our story today. Today we'll be talking about the story, taking a look at this faithful man named Noah. I love this story because the Bible is extremely clear that Noah was a blameless man. We're also going to take a look at a cataclysmic flood. That's a big word, and I'm surprised I didn't butcher it, so go me, Uh, that's brought as judgment from God. We're going to take a look at a giant boat that's commanded by God, and then ultimately we're going to take a look at a solution that demonstrates the grace of God. You see, when we look at this story, what we see is sin and pain and judgment. But when I look at the story, I see grace. I see a solution. I see a fix. Like I said before, it's a story that many of you guys have heard before growing up. I remember sitting in Miss Mary Jane's Sunday school class at a small Baptist church. And I remember her sitting us down and probably giving us animal crackers to eat on that given day because you're talking about animals, so of course you have animal crackers. And using one of those cool, like, flannel graph felt boards to stick up the characters and explain as nicely as possible the mass destruction that occurs in the story of Noah. See, here's the thing, guys. I know the story of Noah's Ark well, but it's not one that I've allowed to penetrate my heart. I think a lot of times the stories that we know the best are the ones we think about the least. And I think that today God has something for us in this story that we think we might know, but might reveal itself to be slightly different than what we think we know. As a final piece of context, before we start reading some scripture, I want to just tell us what we are reading, right? Right? When it comes to the book of Genesis, sometimes there's this a little bit unclear definition of what is 100% historical, what is like a little bit like kind of allegorical or story or narrative. What I want to tell you guys what we're reading today is this. It's the Jewish retelling of a flood narrative that's found in multiple other pieces of ancient Near Eastern literature. A lot of people would say that that disproves the Genesis account. I would say that means that the ancient Near Eastern writers— including the writer of Genesis, we're looking back to a common event that they had a memory of. So when we talk about this flood, I think it's something that all of those people had in common. And I think that does more to establish the story than to diminish the story. Uh, in a commentary that I was reading <clears throat> earlier this week by InterVarsity Press, it states this, there's no reason to doubt that the ancient Near Eastern accounts and the Genesis account refer. Or, sorry, there's no reason to doubt that the ancient Near Eastern accounts and the Genesis account refer to the same flood. This would certainly account for similarities. The differences exist because each culture is viewing the flood through its own theology and its own worldview. So. What does that mean? It means that there was different people writing of this common event in different ways. But as Christians and as Jewish people who would have been reading this text, we believe this is the right retelling, right? We believe that there's something significant about the one that we find in Genesis. And so that's why we're going to look at it today. One last caveat is I don't think what we're about to read in Genesis 6 is intended to be a science book, okay? There's a lot of people that want to take to Genesis 6, 7, and 8 and form entire worldviews based on just those three chapters. And I think that some of that stuff has a lot of merit. We're not going to talk about that today, because I think that there's multiple ways to understand the story that are all possibly correct. And if you want some online resources about how you can take a look at was the flood literal, was the flood global, how big was the flood, how long did the flood last, all that different stuff, I have a list of resources that I'll be glad to pass along to you. But today that's not what we're going to do with the text, so having done the work to understand our context, it's time for us to jump into this narrative, and I think this story is just absolutely amazing. It Starts like this in Genesis chapter six, verse one. When mankind began to multiply on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of the God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful, and they took as uh, any they chose as wives for themselves. And the Lord said, "My spirit will not remain with mankind forever, because they are corrupt." Their days will be hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterward, when the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind, who bore children to them. They were the powerful men of old, the famous men. In verse four, or in verses one and four, sorry, we start to already have some questions start arising. You know, I was talking to people this week, and they're like, what are you preaching on? I'm like, oh, I'm preaching about these, like, evil divine beings having sex with humans and creating giants. And they're like, whoa, what? And I'm like, the Bible is wild sometimes. (laughs) So anyway, the questions that came up for me, uh, as someone who, for what it's worth, I have a degree in the Bible. I did this for college. There's still a lot of things I don't understand. The questions that came up were, who were the daughters of man? Who were the sons of God? Why is this union between the two parties provoking the judgment of God, and what does it mean by their days will be 120 years? The simple answer I came up to for these questions was this. I'm not certain, (laughs) which I know is not satisfying. But when it comes to the Old Testament, sometimes there's things that we read that we do not definitively know. And that doesn't mean we stop looking for a good answer. It means sometimes there's things that are complicated. Sometimes there's things that are over our head. And honestly, I can't wait until heaven when I get to sit with God himself and ask some of these questions. But for today, the answer to those questions is, I'm not certain. Here's what I think is happening. Uh, The most accurate depiction I've found that seems to fit with what's going on with the rest of the Bible And it comes from the Makers of the Bible Project, which is a great online resource. If you haven't used the Bible Project before, you should really check it out. It's a website. I think it's literally bibleproject.com. And they have great explainer videos that will tell you all about Scripture. Here's what the Makers of the Bible Project say about Genesis 6. In Genesis 6, we get an odd story about the sons of God, which could refer to evil angelic beings. I'm like, in my mind, the picture that pops up Mothman. Like, it, I just feel like it's just Mothman. Anyway, uh, sorry, it's a total sidebar. Uh, or it could refer, refer to some ancient kings who claim that they've descended to gods. And when I think about that, I think about certain politicians that might claim the same thing. Seems that their sin was that they acquired as many wives as they wanted, and they produced the Nephilim, great warriors who are sometimes viewed as being the giants of old. So, according to what we have in this view, in the beginning of Genesis chapter 6, is we have these evil angelic beings, potentially, or kings, who are taking as many wives as they want, which is against God's plan for marriage, right? We believe in one man, one woman in marriage. And they're having these really weird babies that are called the Nephilim, which are giants. Uh, And I'll be honest, guys, I don't really think we have that going on in 2023. I could be totally wrong. There could be stuff I don't know. Uh, But I haven't seen giants, and I definitely haven't seen like a demonic angelic being in my life. So With that being said, sometimes this context is a little difficult for us because we're like, that doesn't seem to connect to me. Today, I want to show you that it does. One last point on the Nephilim. I think it's just interesting because sometimes people will be like, did you know that there's giants in the Bible? And you're like, no, that can't be true. And then you start reading this and you're like, yeah, a little bit. Uh, In the book of Numbers, the author of that book actually states that they were like, the people, the general people, were like grasshoppers compared to the size of the Nephilim. So if you ever heard that there's giants in the Bible, it's safe to say there probably are. If you've heard that there's giants still in the playoffs, it's safe to say that's a lie because, <laughs> because they're bad. Because they're bad and they hurt me personally when they beat the Vikings. So I'm glad you guys laughed at that. I wasn't sure if that one was going to land, but we went with it. No matter what theory we accept, no matter what theory is presented, and maybe it's correct or maybe it's incorrect, uh, the truth remains that here's what's happening. Humans are going outside of their relationship with God to create for themselves a life that they've always wanted. And what's happening through doing that is they're creating a world that's more sinful and more violent. They're pursuing their own well-being at the expense of others, and God is provoked by their actions. You see, God creates this amazing world in Genesis 1. And by Genesis 6— Things are just totally, totally out of whack. You know, one of the primary reasons, I work a lot with teenagers, and I talk to them about faith quite a bit. And one of the reasons I primarily hear about why they don't want to be a Christian is they're offended by the state of the world around us. They say things like, why does cancer exist? Why are there wars? Why do people die at a young age? Why are my relationships broken? Why did my parents get a divorce? If God is good, why does pain exist? But from Scripture, we learn that sin is the culprit behind the brokenness that we see in our world. You see, God creates everything, and he says it's good. I believe that in 2023, despite the world not looking good, that God is still good. I think that what we see here is our problem. We caused it. The world is broken, but it's not his fault. It's ours. And so our first takeaway, if you're taking notes on your paper today, is this. We live in a sinful world. We live in a sinful world. You know, as Matt mentioned last week, sin can be super attractive, right? We commit sin every single day in one way or another. And the reason we do that is because it's attractive. Sin usually seems like the right path to get many of the things that we long for in life. See, we believe in things like going our own way and ignoring the ways of God, but we're all inherently sinful, right? Romans talks to us about how we all have fallen short of the glory of God. So we're all sinful. So I think we're all inherently sinful, but we also all inherently are aware that sin will never lead us to the life we long for. You see, we commit sin every day, but I don't think we actually believe in that sin. I don't think we think that that's going to get us where we're trying to go. And so in Genesis 6, verse 5 to 7, the author goes on to say this. When the Lord saw that human weakness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil at the time. Think about that. It's talking about both their actions and also their mindsets. That applies to us. Their actions, also their mindsets. Human mind was nothing but evil at the time. The Lord regretted That he had made man on the earth, and he was deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind who I have created off the face of the earth together with the animals, creatures that crawl, the birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. Man, I don't know about you guys, but like, church is supposed to be like a happy, peppy, you know, go lucky kind of place. And we get to this, and it brings up some real emotion because what we read here, that last line just kills me. I regret. That I made them, probably brings up some pretty big emotion. You know, the thing is, I think we understand the weight of sin, and I think for a lot of us, we're even saddened by sin, and if we're saddened by sin, that puts us in great company. That's our second takeaway for today is that God is saddened by our sin. I can't get past the words that are used there that everything was evil all the time and the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth and he was deeply grieved. We read scripture and time after time after time again, we see that God has emotions. And right here in this passage, we're seeing a really serious emotion. We're seeing grief. I think it's something we can all relate to. We can all think back to a time that we lost a family member or a friend or a relationship, or a dream, or a job, and we deeply grieve that loss. God is grieving the loss of his friends, of his creation, and God is saddened by our sin. Genesis 6-3, I want to kind of backtrack to it, because um, I think there's something here that's kind of interesting, and I brought up that there's a question here, so we'll kind of cover that in a minute. In Genesis 6, 3, it says this, and the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. This is another one of those points that when you read scripture and when you read commentaries and least listen to podcasts and watch videos on YouTube, because you can learn anything on YouTube, uh, there's not a clear cut answer as to what this idea of their days being 120 years means. A lot of times the explanation that's uh, given is that in Genesis we see a lot of people living for a really long time, and then after the flood they'll say that people live a shorter time. Uh, That's kind of true, but we also do have accounts of people that lived after 120 years in the book of Genesis post-flood, and so I actually don't think that that's the best understanding of what's happening. I think the best explanation of this that I've found is this 120 years line, Means that God was saying that He was going to give the world a 120 year grace period before He brought down His judgment on the world. Imagine God being so deeply grieved by our sin that He looks and He's like, I gotta clear this whole thing out, I gotta fix it somehow. But instead of just immediately doing it like we think of when we think of like gods and we see gods in movies and stuff where it's like, oh, you said a cuss word, lightning bolt. Doof. Uh, God isn't like that, right? Um, what happens here, I think God is saying that he's going to give him 120 year grace period. I think that fits with the narrative that we see of the flood. What I believe we're seeing in this passage is a moment which— God is saddened by his creation, but he's not acting reactively. He wants to give humankind another chance to correct their ways, turn from their sin, and run back to him. The problem is that humans are horrible at doing that. You see, as the creator of the world, God has every right to bring judgment against sin. And while we see him do that in this story, we also see him give a second chance to his creation. Another thing that we see in this passage that I think is really important, and it's a defining factor about Noah, is found in Genesis 6, verse 8 and 9. It says this, Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. These are the family records of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. Noah, I love this idea, walked with God. The idea of walking with God isn't new to Scripture. We're short into Scripture. But we also see Adam and Eve walking with God in the Garden of Eden. And so when we see this and we read it about Noah, there's a comparison being drawn that in the same way that Adam and Eve were having that close relationship with God, so was Noah. And that at this time, when God could wipe everything out and kill everyone indiscriminately, he doesn't do that. He finds Noah and he gives him a chance. You know, it's important to note that God doesn't lump everyone together. You know, there were a couple of ways that God could have handled this problem that he was witnessing. First one, he could have allowed sin and violence and all the things that people were doing to continue with no judgment. But I feel like not intervening would have actually been worse than the intervention itself. See, the world would have ended up destroying itself anyway. I kind of think about a parent who has kids, and they love their kids, Right? And they see their kids fighting all the time. And then one day the parent looks at the kids and they're like, I didn't create you to just sit around and fight with your brother. So they're like knocking each other out. Like we're talking a violent fight. And the parent just kind of looks at it and walks away and turns a blind eye. None of us would consider that to be good parenting. And none of us would consider it good if God had just turned a blind eye and let everything keep going as it was. A quote by Ellie Weissel, the prolific writer and Holocaust survivor, is this, the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. See, the thing is, God was grieved by this sin, but he was not indifferent to the situation. He had a stake in it, and he wanted to fix it. Another possible solution is he could have scrapped the entire world, restarted on Mars, Venus, or my favorite planet, Pandora. Any Avatar fans? <laughs> not many. Okay, cool. Uh But guys, the same God who brought our world from non-function to function, from chaos to order, could have spoken the entire thing back into chaos and back into non-function. He could have said, I'm done with it. And he could have just destroyed the entire thing right on the spot. Instead, he finds a third solution. He judges the world because of their sin, but he shows grace in the process by allowing Noah to live uh, and waiting 120 years after the flood. This is the pattern this isn't new to God. Adam and Eve, they're given commands. They break the commands. They now see that they're naked and they're ashamed of that. God exhibits grace by making them close. The next story we see in just a short span of time, Cain kills his brother. He's afraid and paranoid for his life, thinking that somebody's going to kill him. And God extends grace by offering him some level of divine Protection. You see, ultimately the story of Noah is just another example of what God does. It's another example of his unchanging character, and his unchanging character is full of mercy and grace. And we see him exhibit that grace here. That's our next point. God extends grace to us. This is where our story starts picking up. I'm going to skip over some because it's three chapters and we got about five minutes. So uh, stick with me. We're going to do our best to sum up what's happening. I would encourage you, if you haven't read this story in its entirety, this week, read Genesis 6 to 9. It's three chapters. You can read a couple verses a day and you'll make it. It'll be amazing. It says this in Genesis 6, verse 17 to 21. This is God talking to Noah. Understand that I'm bringing a flood. Flood waters on the earth to destroy every creature under heaven and the breath of uh, life—with the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you'll enter the ark with your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives. And then basically what he tells them next is to take a bunch of animals along because everybody loves animals, right? (laughs) So anyway, I imagine he's like, this is gonna be really hard on you guys. Take some puppies. (laughs) Like, just take a couple of puppies. Uh, Like I said, what we see here is a tough conversation between Noah and God. This is the moment where God is grieved And he's laying out his plan for judgment, but he's also laying out a plan for grace. Initially, as I was reading this, I started to ask myself, what might Noah be thinking? What might Noah be feeling? I want to place ourselves in this story. What was this like? Anxiety about how big the flood was going to be. Remorse over the fact there's people who are not going to be saved. Despair because his friends wouldn't be going with him anger that god would let the world come to this and maybe some self-doubt over whether he could complete this assignment so in the middle of all these emotions what is noah's response says this in genesis 6 verse 22 and noah did this he did everything that god had commanded him we're short on time but i do want to kind of bring up this question for us maybe you can jot this down if you have a little bit of space on your notes do we trust God enough to do everything that he commands? See, the response from Noah is, is simple. It's everything that God commands. I think for you and I, we like to take things, we like to segment them off a little bit. We're like, oh, I'll give God like, my Sunday morning, but I'm not going to give him like my Sunday night. And I'm going to give him like, a little bit of my money, but I'm not going to give him control over all my money. And like, I'm going to give him some of my relationship stuff, but like my marriage, like, I can kind of do whatever I want in that, right? At the end of the day, I don't think many of us actually trust God enough to do everything that he commands. But our next takeaway, and something I think is a good takeaway for all of us, is this. That we're called to irresponsible obedience. You see, the people that were watching Noah do this probably thought he was crazy. But nevertheless, Noah continued on in faith, trusting God's promise, and acting on this irresponsible-seeming obedience to build the ark that would ultimately save him from the coming flood. A quote that I love by an Anglican pastor named John Stott says this, Christian obedience is unlike every other kind of obedience. It's not the obedience of slaves or soldiers, but essentially the obedience of lovers who, lo- or lovers who love and trust the person who is issuing the commands. Genesis chapter 7, verse 5, we hear the same thing again. And Noah did everything that the Lord commanded him. So what happens next? We know what happens next. We know uh, what happens? Sorry, I had to do it. Uh, we know what happens next. Noah builds a boat. God says, "Hey, the flood's coming." God closes the door to the boat with Noah and his family on board, and then suddenly uh, there is this flood. Okay. I want to highlight just a couple more things, and then we'll be done. In Genesis ver- uh, chapter seven, verse six. I think it goes in a really interesting direction, and I wanted to highlight this because I think it's important and it'll lead us to another takeaway. It says this, Noah was 600 years when the flood came and the waters covered the earth. So Noah, his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives entered uh, sons' wives. Yep, entered the ark uh, because of the floodwaters. I was struck by what we read here, and I found it captivating that the scriptures mention that Noah is blameless, but it doesn't say his family is blameless. It says that Noah is obedient, but it says nothing about his family helping. Leads us to our next big takeaway, that our obedience brings hope to the world. When we are obedient to the things that God calls us to, it results in some really cool things for other people, right? See, it doesn't tell us that Noah's family was blameless like he was. We just know that Noah acted on that irresponsible obedience— And his family is saved because of it. You know, it's pretty cool to think about the implications of this. Based on this story, if it wasn't for Noah, humanity is gone. If it wasn't for Noah, you and I are not here, according to this story. The obedience of one guy changes the course of history forever. I think it's insane to think about the implications of the obedience of just one person. That's where I want us to land and conclude this morning. You know, thinking about the implications of one person who was obedient. You see, the unifying theme of Scripture is Jesus. And this idea of obedience that results in salvation isn't just Noah's story. It's Jesus's story. In Philippians chapter 2 verse 8 it says this, He, it's Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. You see, the act of dying on a cross was an act of irresponsible obedience on the part of Jesus. Jesus was told the plan from the Father, and he acted on it. And because of that, we have a way of having a restored relationship with God. Because the obedience of one person— St. Augustine writes this uh, in his book, The City of God. Undoubtedly, the ark is a symbol of the city of God on its pilgrimage in history, a figure of the church which was saved by the wood on which there hung a mediator between God and men, himself man, Christ Jesus. As we finish up, I kind of want to point out what's happening. If we read Scripture through the lens of Jesus being the point of it all, then Noah points us to Jesus, the wooden ark points us to the wooden cross. And the people who get to go on and just kind of enjoy the ride, that's you and I. You see, our obedience is important, but it can't save us. But the obedience of Jesus is enough to save us. Our salvation is made possible only through the obedience of Jesus. Romans five nineteen. Just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience the many will become made righteous. You see, when the flood receded, Noah and his family were safe, but sin still lingered. That problem had to still be dealt with. And God made a promise. You've heard the story. He puts a rainbow in the sky and says, I'll never destroy the world like this again. God makes that promise. So how does he deal with sin? He deals with sin by placing it on himself on the cross. He takes everything that you and I have done, every penalty that you and I deserve, and he places it on himself. And that leads us to our final takeaway for today, that Jesus's ultimate obedience is our ultimate hope. You know, my prayer for us today is that we would place our faith in Jesus, that you would make him the source of your hope. You see, there was salvation for those who clung to the ark, and there's salvation for anyone who would cling to the cross. I want to finish by reciting a verse together and then singing a quick song together. We're going to do something a little different, and I think it's going to be great. So if you would, go ahead and stand up with me. And this verse is going to be on the screen. You can say it with me, or you can just listen. Uh, But it's really, really great. And I think it sums up everything we've talked about in this way. 1 Peter 1, 3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead.